Hi, I, I'm Randy Peterson. Uh, I, I know many of you, and if I don't, please introduce yourself uh, after I talk, if, you're still, if we're still on speaking terms at that point. But uh, um, I would love to, uh, uh, to meet you. Uh, I'm uh, somewhere on the depth chart of preachers here. I, I, I'm fifth or sixth uh, down the list, but when... Uh, Everyone else is still dealing with a hangover from Christmas. Uh, they asked me to fill in. Uh, and and the, the task today was an interesting one, because at first they said, I, just talk about anything you want. And, um, and then they thought, no, maybe that's not such a good idea. Knowing Randy, he might talk about who knows what. Um, and so then they said, let's... let's go back to, let's wrap up that mega-series on the way that we've been talking about, how we live as Christians, uh, and that, that we've been doing for several months. And uh, so we, we took a break for that through uh, the Advent uh, time and uh, did the fear and hope thing. And uh, we're going to get back to the way, and we have another series that connects to that in the future. So this will be a connective thing for that. Uh, so I said, sure, I'll do that. And uh, then I realized that je today, January 6th, is Epiphany, which is traditionally in the church the celebration of the, the wise men, the magi who came to to see the, the Christ child and to offer the gifts. Uh, and so the church has always celebrated that. So this is sort of, this is the, the end of the Christmas season. In fact, the 12 days of Christmas are between Christmas and now. And so, so there is a lot of tradition in that. And so I kind of want to talk about that too. So you thought you were done with Christmas. We're not done yet. We have a little more to talk about. Uh, about Christmas. We're not going to sing the 12 days of Christmas. I know that's disappointing. And, and Marilyn's here. Marilyn used to lead that at the, the Voorhees campus. Uh, but no, we're not, we're not doing that. I personally hate that song. Um, <laughs> just saying. So this is the sort of message that's going to tie everything together, I hope. It's going to wander around a bunch of stuff, and there will be going to be times when you say, where is he going, and are we going to get out of here by lunchtime? And, uh, and I, I assure you that it will, it, well, I think it will all come together, and uh, I, indul I ask for your indulgence with me. When I think about Christmas, I think about drama. I'm a, I'm a theater guy and have always been from very early times. So uh, my, some of my earliest memories in life are of of getting together with my brother and sister and putting together little Christmas plays for mom and dad. How sweet is that? that you know, so every year, and, and so I, I have this distinct memory of a time when my sister was probably three and I was seven and my brother was 10, and we had a meeting in like November and said, well, Christmas is coming. We need to do a Christmas play for mom and dad. So what are we going to do? We have to make it different from last year. And so, and of course, my three-year-old sister, she has no idea what we did last year and, and doesn't care. But uh, uh, so we'd make her the donkey or something. But, um, but we would create something and, and, and tell the story again in a, in a new way. 
And I think I always had that uh, growing up. Uh, and I was involved in a church which thankfully uh, encouraged creativity and, uh, and we were uh, encouraged to use drama in various ways. And so I remember when I was in 10th grade, I had an idea for a Christmas play that would be different, that, that would, would have a new energy to it. And um, my idea was that instead of everyone coming and sitting and watching a story on a stage, that people would actually uh, tour the Christmas story. Now, we had, at this church, we had a kind of campus, much like the, the campus in Voorhees uh, now, where there was a, a, a main church building. There was actually a house on the property, a very old historical house that Betsy Ross once lived in. And, uh, and then there was behind that a little uh, other house, or a tiny kind of a garage thing. We had made it into a youth center, and it was really cool. And then there was a playground for the children. And so there were all these different areas on this campus, and I, and I began to envision, okay, well, we could have the angel appearing to Mary down here in this corner of the parking lot, and then we could have Mary and Joseph uh, coming to the inn, and that could be the garage youth center over there, and then we could have the angels appearing in the playground, and we could have the back steps of the church were kind of raised up, and there's a platform there. That could be the throne room of Herod, and the wise men could come to the, had it all worked out? wrote a script for it, my mom directed it, and, uh, and we did this. I played King Herod and uh, got a really, somebody made a robe for me to wear and a crown, I, so I was all glammed up as Herod, and, and, uh, um, and it rained, uh, I remember, so it, it, kinda, it literally dampened uh, the event, and... Um, I think we got through it anyway, but people caught colds and stuff. Um, there is something very important. I didn't realize it at the time, but something that, in fact, in preparing this message, I, I realized there was something very important about what we did there, that, that somehow in my 15-year-old brain, I realized something important about the Christmas story and about Christianity in general. It is not a spectator sport. It is not something that you sit and watch. That the Christian faith is something that you walk through, that you journey through, that you participate in. Um, this is what we're talking about when we talk about the way. The way of Christianity. Again, we've said a million times, I'm going to say it probably three more times this morning, it's not a bunch of religious things you do to score points with God. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the way that we practice this relationship with Jesus Christ that we are in. How do we keep in touch? How do we keep following him. And it is something with movement. It is not just a bunch of ideas that we assent to, that we learn, that we sit in a room and, and feed into our brains. It is something that we drink into ourselves and act on. It moves us, sometimes literally and sometimes emotionally and spiritually. We grow, we move. Uh, I have a slide on this, actually. And so, so, so far, this is the kind of thing we've been talking about. We've talked about this in various ways. That the way involves communicating with the Lord. 
It involves paying attention to the Lord's messages, and it involves following where the Spirit leads. Now, this may not be the exhaustive list. This is where we are so far with this in our exploration of what it means to be a Christian. But we communicate with the Lord. That's, that's talking and listening. That's praying. That's having times when we get together with God and communicate. Um, Again, those of you who are married or have significant relationships know the importance of regular communications. That if you go for a day without really talking to your spouse, there's a problem. You need to set that time. And in fact, many spouses have those special moments in the morning, at the, in the evening. They kiss each other goodnight and, and say, goodnight, I love you. And maybe talk about the day or whatever. You have those moments that you have crafted in your life as special times of communication. We do that as Christians too. We set aside times in our lives to talk with God. We're also paying attention to what he is saying to us. And that's usually through the scriptures. What has he taught throughout the ages? In one of the messages I've given recently, I talked about how when God speaks, things happen. We find this again and again in Scripture. And the Bible itself is the record of God speaking and things happening. And so when we want to know what God is doing in the world, what he has done in the world, and what he wants to do with us, we open the Bible and read about, the, about this in the Bible. Yes, there are things we don't understand there. Yes, there are hard statements there that we have to study. But this is the word of God that speaks into our lives with, with power and challenge, and we learn from that. We pay attention to what God is doing in the scriptures, but also in the community of faith and in, in our inter, everyday interactions. We follow where the Spirit leads. And so as we sense God telling us what to do, we step out in faith and go step by step by step in the way of the Lord. And in fact, there's this wonderful verse, one of my favorites, uh, Galatians 5, uh, right after where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what the, what the Christian life looks like. Uh, in terms of love, joy, peace, um, and so on. It says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So we live by the Spirit. So yeah, okay, we have the Spirit in us, the fruit of the Spirit. We've got the love, joy, peace. Great. Again, it's not just sitting back and saying, okay, I'm spiritual. It is keeping in step. What do you want me to do today, Spirit? Guide me today, Spirit. Let me make this decision right now with the Spirit. And that's the challenge that we have for us as we live in the way of Jesus. And when you think about it, communicating, paying attention, following the Spirit step by step, isn't that what the wise men did? When we look at the story of the wise men, you see, I told you we weren't finished with the Christmas story yet. The wise men pay attention to the start. They don't, well, we don't know what kind of scriptures they had. And I'll talk about that more in a, in a little bit. Um, but they are looking at the sky and hoping that God gives them some kind of clue in the sky. And he does. He sends them a star. They're paying attention. And they sense the Spirit telling them there is a royal birth going on in Israel. 
And so they follow, literally step by step, as they go to see where the Christ child is, and they bring gifts. What's interesting about the story of the wise men, we don't know much from the scriptures about who they are. There are all sorts of church traditions that have named them and, and you know, given them various identities, but that's not in the Bible. The Bible tells us what they did. They saw a star, they went on a journey. They checked it out in Jerusalem because, of course, the king would know if there was a newborn king. And uh, they had that little interaction where Herod was secretly very jealous and got information from them, sent them to Bethlehem. They worshipped. They had a dream. Communication with God. They had a dream that told them, no, don't go back to Herod. Go back a different way. That's what I want you to do. And so again, they adjusted their plans. Rick talked about this last week, about how they kept in touch with God and adjusted their plans as he guided them differently. They were in the way. They were walking in the way of God, even though Jesus was just a baby at this point. Now let's talk about who these wise men might have been, because there are more lessons that we might learn here, but we're entering an area of conjecture, okay? Because we're not told exactly who they were just what they did, but we know they came from the East. And Rick mentioned this last week, and I agree with him. There is a theory that they came from Babylon. I think that's a pretty good theory for, for a number of reasons. There was a strong Jewish tradition in Babylon since the time that many of the Jews were taken captive uh, and taken to Babylon. Uh, there was, particular, there was a, a, a tradition long before that of magi, of of stargazers of, of wise men who would advise the king in Babylon. We know that that was going on for a long time. In fact, there is some thought that the Tower of Babel, which was in the area of Babylon, was actually an observatory that gazed up at the stars, and they thought they could figure God, the gods out by by looking at the stars. I don't know if that's true, but, but it goes that far back, centuries and centuries and centuries back, this tradition of looking at the stars and wondering what the divine forces were doing with that. So historically, we have um, in around the year 600 BC, okay, 600 years before Jesus is born, Daniel and several friends are Jews in Jerusalem who are captured by an invading Babylonian army. They are the first wave of captives that are taken to Babylon. The first wave was made up of the best and the brightest. The the smartest people in Jerusalem were taken. And so Daniel and his friends were smart. They were talented. And the Babylonians said, we want to train these people for our service. They're going to be leaders in our government. We need all the help we can get, and so we're going to reorient them. We're going to make them loyal to Babylon, and they will serve as advisors in our government. And so that's what they tried to do with Daniel. My theory, I'm not the only one that has this, uh, but um, I like this theory, that There was a tradition that Daniel started as he became part of this group of advisors in Babylon, that he brought his Jewish heritage with him, he brought his belief in God with him, 
And the adventures that he had there became part of the lore of Babylon and were passed on to generations. I believe that the Magi who came to the Christ child were from Babylon and they had learned the tradition of Daniel. They knew the story of Daniel because that had been passed on. Daniel had had such an effect on his generation that that passed through the generations to the Magi there. So they're not starting with a blank slate. They're starting with some knowledge of this faithful Jewish man and his three friends. So, who was Daniel? Well, we have a number of stories in Daniel. We have a number of teachings and prophecies that Daniel made. So we look back at the book of Daniel, which I am assuming that the Magi had access to before they came to see the Christ child. We have verses like this, and, and there's, there's one on the screen here. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, those who lead many to, uh, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And I wonder if the Magi read this and smile and say, that's us, we're the wise guys. We lead people to righteousness, and we're going to be like the stars that we follow. A, a cute connection of the various themes that we're working with here. But there was another passage that, that Daniel, a vision that Daniel saw, which is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. Um, comes, it's Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Pause there. Go, go back to, to that. And let's get this scene. This is a vision Daniel's having. And he sees two characters there. One like a son of man. Now, in the common language of that time, it, it means a human being, someone who looked like a person. Okay? But that term, son of man, is very important because Jesus used it later. Um, but then he has the character of the ancient of days. This is a term for God, for the, the main deity, the creator. So we have the Ancient of Days, and there is a human person coming with the clouds of heaven, approaching the Creator and being brought into His presence. And, let's see the rest of the verse, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is this talking about? It's, not to, it's, it's talking about the human person, the Son of Man, is given this glory. The glory that belongs to the Creator is being shared with this other person, this Son of Man. So when Jesus later goes through his ministry, he calls himself the Son of Man, which is at the, at the same time both a very humble designation and a very proud one. He's saying, I'm just a guy, just a human person. But he's also saying, oh, remember what Daniel saw? That human person who is brought into the presence of the Creator and exalted and given authority, the authority that belongs only to God, is shared with this Son of Man. This is the picture of the Messiah. This is the Anointed One. This ties together with many other scriptures in the Old Testament to give this picture of who Jesus turned out to be. I wonder how much of that 
the Magi got. I think they may have seen this. They may have understood this, that there was a new, there was a person coming into this world who would be this, who would be at the right hand of God and who would achieve the redemption of the world. There were some other prophecies there, and we may talk about them later. But this is what the Magi were going with. They had studied. They had paid attention to what God was doing. They had the teachings of Daniel. They also had the actions of Daniel. So we know, and you may know some stories, some of you, uh, from the life of Daniel, how you've heard of Daniel's, Daniel and the lion's den, perhaps, right? What was that about? Well, Daniel had a, a, a habit. He would pray every day. He would open his windows in the direction of his hometown, Jerusalem, and he would kneel down and pray in the direction of Jerusalem. And everyone would see him. It was a very public thing, but it was really his private communication with God there. His enemies didn't like that. They, didn't, they were jealous of him. He had attained some power there. They didn't like it. And so they passed a law that said, you're not allowed to do that. If you pray to anyone other than the king, you're disloyal. And we will throw you into a den of lions, and they will eat you up, and you will die. That, that was the law they made. And Daniel said, tough, this is what I do. I have to do this. This is who I am. And he kept praying. And he was arrested and thrown into a den of lions. And the miracle was that God stopped the mouths of the lions. The lions did not eat him. He was saved, rescued. And, and it wound up being a great moment of celebration of God's power here, that God worked a miracle to save Daniel. But underneath all of that is the idea that Daniel had this habit this ritual, this tradition that put him in the presence of God in a special way, that he would pray every day to the God that he was taken away from, but was always with him. The very first chapter of Daniel. That, that actually happened when Daniel was an old man. You may have pictures in your mind of Daniel as a little kid doing that. No, he was an old guy by that time. But we do have a, a story from his youth or, or as a young man, when he was first brought to Babylon, remember, best and the brightest, they brought them, uh, they gave him the royal treatment, literally. They brought him to the king's palace, and the king had this sous chef that did all sorts of great stuff for him, and they said, here, we're going to give you all the rich food that the king has. And so Daniel and this group of new young talent we're all given this great food. And Daniel and his three Jewish friends said, no, we don't want to eat this food. This is rich food. This is for, for kings. We want to eat simple food, just, you know, vegetables and, and water. And, um, and, and I'll tell you what, let's just make a wager on this. We'll, we will just eat this simple diet and we'll wind up healthier than all the people who are eating the rich food. And, um, and they won that bet. They, uh, who knew that a low-fat diet would be more <laughs> healthy? Imagine that. Um, 
For a long time, I read that story, and I assumed that it had to do with the Jewish dietary regulations from the Bible, that, that, there were, you know, that they needed to keep kosher, and this was non-kosher food they were being given. As I re- have read that more, I don't think so. I don't think there was anything about the law in that. I think it was just this sense they had that if they ate the king's food, they would have to do the king's bidding. They would be seduced into a way of life that they did not want. They would be pampered. They would learn to enjoy those great things. And if the time ever came that they would have to decide to do what the king said or to do what God said, eh, they liked that food a lot. And so they would go with the guy who gave them the food. I think that's what was going on there. And so they just took a stand for their identity as followers of God rather than followers of the king. And this may have seemed like a a minor thing, and they may have, you know, as they talked among themselves, they may have said, you know, this is, you know, it might not be so bad to eat this food. It smells pretty good, you know. And no, we need to take this stand at this point and be who we are and not who the king wants us to be. Well, interestingly, a couple, uh, a couple chapters later, we have another story where the stakes do get higher, where that very thing happens, where the king says, I want everybody to bow down to an idol of me. And if you don't, I will throw you into a fiery furnace and you will burn to a crisp and die. And uh, somehow Daniel is not in that story. I don't know where he was, if he was traveling or, or, or what. But his other three friends with big, long names um, were there. And they said, no, we are not going to bow down and worship the king because this is really important. This is the first commandment. You will have no other, com- uh, other gods before me. And so they say, we refuse to worship the king. And so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But once again, there's a miracle. God preserves them. They do not burn up in the fire. And in fact, when the king looks into the fire, he says, wait a second, didn't we throw three guys in there? Why are there four there now? And this is a mystery. We don't, so there was some fourth person in there. And my sense of it is that this was God. This was God with us. The God who stands with his people in times of struggle. This was God, maybe a a prefiguring of Jesus himself. God with us, Emmanuel, was with them in the furnace. Because they were true to who they were. Okay, we've had some stories from Daniel that are in the grid of the Magi as they journey on their way eventually to Bethlehem. What do we find in Daniel's story? We find communication with God. We find that they are, that Daniel and his friends are making choices about their lives that are consistent with the way that they have been shown. That they are following God's leading in what they eat, but also who or what they worship. They are on the way. The way of faith, Daniel and his friends, 600 years before Jesus, and that tradition carries on through centuries, maybe to the Magi, who, 
with this understanding, paying attention to what God has done in the life of Daniel, they decide to do it themselves, and so they set out on this journey. To throw another thing in here, 2,000 years earlier maybe, a guy named Abraham, living in, the, in Babylon, gets a message from God. Get up and go to a place that I will show you. God tells him to move. He up and moves. That response of faith was the beginning of the Jewish nation. It was the beginning of the faith of Jews and Christians. It was hailed throughout Scripture as the response that God wants from people. A response of faith. Get up and go. I'm going to go. The Spirit says move. i got to move. Later, the Israelites were wandering through the desert. God led them through the desert with a cloud, a bright cloud, fire at night, brightness in the day. When it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. They set up camp. They put up the tabernacle. The cloud came down and rested in the tabernacle, a symbol of God's presence with them. And when the cloud went up and started moving, they moved again. They were walking step by step by step guided by God. And so here are the Magi on their way to see this thing that has come to pass, this birth, step by step, guided not by a cloud, by a star. I've always been interested in the star and what that was, and there are a lot of scholars who've thought about that and written about that. Uh, and there are some interesting theories. There are some astronomers who have said that there was, there was a conjunction of Jupiter and Mars about that time, and it was in a constellation which would have represented Israel, and so the, it would have shown a royal birth in Israel. And all of that is really interesting, and it may be true, and it may have signaled to the Magi that, this, that there was a royal birth in Israel, but at a certain point in the story, it changes. Because how does a star lead them to a house? It could signal something to them. It might even give them a certain direction to go. It could be a shooting star that shoots in this direction, and so they're going in that direction. But at a certain point, the text says the star led them to the house, and it stopped over the house where Jesus was. They followed the star. And my, my take on this is that, I don't know what it actually was, but I think Matthew is telling us in this story. I, th I think he's referencing the cloud in the wilderness that led the people through the wilderness, that brightness there that led them step by step. And I think he is saying these magi were led, just as the Israelites were led, these magi came and God was leading them with this brightness, this bright sense of his presence, leading them to a particular house where they would worship the Christ child. There's an interesting side conversation to have here. I'm going to take two minutes to do it because it's really important. One of Matthew's themes, maybe three minutes, um, The Magi were from a foreign country. They were outsiders. 
This is one of Matthew's themes. Matthew was a Jew writing for Jews. He frequently referenced the Jewish scriptures, but his message throughout his gospel is that Jesus is for everybody, not just Jews. There was a culture war going on among Jews in that time, and some of them were very closed and said, just us, we're going to turn everyone else away. But there was also this tradition throughout the Old Testament that this faith was for everybody. The Psalms and the prophets talk about nations coming to faith, everyone coming to faith. The Psalms actually talk about kings coming from the east, bearing gifts to to God. And Matthew wants to tell us that what Jesus brings to the world, he brings to the whole world, not just to the Jews. Thanks to the Jews for setting this up, setting up this system that God can can use to bring Jesus to the world. But now this is for everybody and the foreigners come from afar to recognize the Christ child and give him worship. This is what Hope Church is built on. This sense that this is not a closed place where the people who already have faith get together and say how great it is to have faith. We do that, but we don't close up. It is continually outward for people who don't get it, for people who don't have that background. They don't know the scriptures. They don't, haven't been raised in this tradition of faith. They are outsiders, and yet we continually say, come on in. Come and enjoy the party with us and learn and grow and see what all this excitement is about. Come and worship the Christ child with us. Come and worship the Son of Man and find meaning for your life that you are longing for because Jesus is not just for religious people. He's for you too. Wow, thank you. <laughs> I didn't expect applause on that, but uh, I, uh, I, I assume that means you agree with me on that, and, uh, and that means a lot to me, um, because I, my prayer is that that would always be what hope is about. Let's talk about the gifts that the wise men brought, and then we'll be done. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. I think we can learn about what we need to bring to the Lord. It has always been currency. Um, it's money. And so, I am not saying you need to bring your money to God, although you do. Um, I am saying you need to bring your attitude about money to God and let him transform that. Our society has certain assumptions about money, and, and particularly that the more you have, the better off you are that money is good and you need more. Um, That you make decisions in your life based on how much money you can get or save. And that's wise. That's what the world tells us. But just like Daniel and his friends made different decisions, we need to make different decisions about that. And we need to understand that everything we have is God's. And God lets us buy things with the money, but he lets us buy things so that we can serve him. And so, yes, you can buy that car that you want. But that car is God's car. 
So what are you going to do with that car? You're going to, you're going to drive your kids to youth group. You're going to give rides to people who need rides. And because it's not your car, it's God's car. And so everything you buy with money is God's. That's the attitude that we want to have as we bring our gold and our ideas about gold to God. Incense. Frankincense. Incense was a religious artifact there. It was used in the religious ceremonies of ancient Israel, still used in many churches today. And I'm not knocking those churches. This is not really about incense. But what I'm suggesting is that religion is something that we want to give to God. Not, we don't, not that we should stop doing religious things, but that we should give our attitude about religion to God. And that there are a lot of people, and this continues, it creeps into our thinking too, where we say we need to do religious things in order to keep God from being mad at us. There's a lot of fear in the world, and people are motivated to be religious in various ways in order that God won't get them. We are being challenged by the Magi to not go that way, to give that up to the Christ child. To say, this is about a relationship with you. This is about how we connect with you. Maybe religious rituals help us do that, but they're not not a currency on their own that buys us favor with you. Your grace is free. We receive that, and we move forward in the relationship with you. Myrrh. Fascinating gift for the Magi to bring. And uh, myrrh was, a, um, was an embalming spice, actually. It was used to prepare bodies for burial. And uh, in fact, it was certainly one of the spices that the women brought to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday. And when you think about it, would it be possible that there would be a, that this myrrh that was brought to Mary, the mother of Jesus, was somehow kept for those 30 years and brought to the tomb for Jesus' burial at that time and never really used because he rose from the dead. Um, just a thought there. The, and you wonder why the wise men brought this. And, and here again, there, there were some of Daniel's prophecies, and I'm not going to get into, into the the deep stuff of this. I know Dave Evans has studied this and, and, and he would be able to go through the, the exact prophecies of Daniel and how the timeline is offered by Daniel that would suggest that the Messiah would actually be, be killed. The term is used, cut off or destroyed or killed around 30 AD. And so if the Magi did their math, they would say, oh, well, they might be born around this time. And so they might be looking for the birth of a Messiah who would be killed. And so maybe the mother needs some myrrh for the burial. And so they bring myrrh. Myrrh is a substance of sorrow. And in this sort of spiritualization of these gifts that we're going through, we need a different idea about money. We need a different idea about religion. We need a different idea about sorrow. The world says, don't worry, be happy. The worry says, stop complaining. The world says, people like positivity. Stop complaining. 
And yet, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. The Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Let us comfort one another with the comfort that God gives us. We will have tribulation in this world. We will have trials and sorrows. God will work in those and through those. But many of us have this idea that we really can't open up about our problems. That sorrows don't belong in in the church. That we're all about victory and faith and, and everything will be fine. If you just believe, all things work together for good. We need a different idea about that too. And we need to be able to open up with our sorrows to each other so that Jesus can do his wonderful work of restoration and sharing and, and, and cre- creating love, knitting us together in love, often through the sharing of our sorrows. So, when you think of the gifts of the Magi, think about money, think about religion, think about sorrow, and how in different ways God will reshape our attitudes toward all of those, help us make decisions as we try to keep in step with the Spirit. I ran across this wonderful verse that we can use in closing here. Um, It's from the little book of Jude, which I'm guessing that you haven't read lately. Um, Dear friends, keep building on the foundation of your most holy faith as the Holy Spirit helps you to pray. And keep in step with God's love as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to show how kind he is by giving you eternal life. Be helpful to all who may have doubts. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for guiding us, leading us step by step. Help us to think your way, to act your way, to walk your way, to follow you in all aspects of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great new year. Have a great week.